You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Today we're going to be looking at First uh, John, uh, mostly chapter 3. We're going to start a little bit in chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the chairs around you, uh, it can be found on page 1022. Recently, earlier this month, uh, Disney Plus aired a three-part, eight-hour documentary on the Beatles' 1969 recording studio sessions in advance of the last live concert they would ever perform. Shortly after that concert, the Beatles broke up, and the Fab Four went on, to a greater or lesser extent, to have successful solo careers. One of the Beatles, of course, was John Lennon, and in 1971, he released a single called Happy Christmas, War is Over, which was as much a protest song against the Vietnam War as it was a song about Christmas. Part of the lyrics of the song go as follows. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? Another year over, a new one just begun. Another year over, a new one just begun. Perhaps some of you feel that way this morning. Christmas has come, Christmas has gone. 2021 is nearly over, 2022 begins next week. And so it goes. And Christmas can certainly feel that way. There's the excitement and childlike anticipation of Christmas Day, of opening presents and eating a fine feast. But the presents get set aside or broken. There's dishes to do after dinner. Sooner or later, the tree and decorations will come down. Family and friends who have come to visit will go back to their homes, and maybe there's a part of you that wonders, what difference did any of that make? And while we can't know for certain, I can't help but wonder if the people at the center of the first Christmas story felt much the same way. After the wonder of that not-so-silent night, after the shepherds had returned to their flocks, Mary and Joseph were left with a baby to care for. There were sleepless nights and 3 a.m. feedings and teething and diaper changes or whatever they did in 4 B.C. to clean up after a messy baby. And the shepherds who had heard the angels sing and had raced to Bethlehem to see the Messiah, well, they went back to being shepherds. And maybe on some cold rainy night, as they were rescuing, rescuing, rescuing a sheep that had strayed and was stranded on a rocky cliff, or were fighting off wolves, they too wondered, what difference did it all make? During Advent, we have looked at the Word made flesh and have seen Jesus' divinity and humanity. We've considered the profound truths that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. All wonderful truths, and in the ramp up to Christmas, especially meaningful. But on this side of the manger, on this side of the baby being born in Bethlehem, 
What difference did any of it make? This morning, I'd like us to consider the difference that the birth of Jesus makes by looking at 1 John chapter 3. Actually, we'll be starting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and then reading into chapter 3, stopping at verse 18. Please follow along with me as I read from this book that we love, 1 John 2, starting with verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, be present in this moment with the one who speaks and with all who listen, that we would together proclaim the glories of your righteousness 
and the wonders of your love. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this morning, as we consider the difference that the birth of Jesus makes, I'd like us to look at how Jesus' birth changed our relationship with sin, changed our relationship with God, and changed our relationship with each other. Those will be our three points this morning. How Jesus' birth changed our relationship with sin, with God, and with each other. And for each of these points, we'll consider two aspects. Who we were and who we are now. First, how Jesus' birth changed our relationship with sin. And this change really is the most fundamental change that makes a changed relationship with God and a changed relationship with each other possible. The passage that we are looking at this morning talks about what Jesus did to change our relationship with sin. But before we can understand the magnitude of that change, we need to spend some time a few painful, uncomfortable moments talking about who we were. Just as Pastor Matt has talked in the past about the many facets of the gospel, there are also many facets of the effect of sin in our lives. In fact, each facet of the gospel addresses a facet of sin. We were dead in sin. We're alive in Christ. We were lost. Now we're found. We could have a whole sermon series along those lines, but for today, I'd like us to consider how sin makes us unclean. Dane Ortland covers this really beautifully in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly. Ortland says that in Old Testament terms, the categories of clean and unclean don't refer to physical hygiene, but to moral purity. In Leviticus 5, we see that the solution for uncleanness was not to take a bath, but to offer a sacrifice. Moreover, when an unclean person came in contact with a clean person, that clean person became unclean. Moral impurity was contagious, and so people kept their distance from anyone who was unclean. Lepers had to wear long or torn clothes and let the hair of their head hang loose and cry out, unclean, unclean, so that those who were clean would know to stay away, lest they too be made unclean. They were outcasts, excluded from the broader community, with no hope for inclusion. And while there were legitimate reasons from a public health standpoint, Leprosy also served as a metaphor for moral impurity, remedied only by the offering of a sacrifice. We too were outcasts, unclean by the stain of our sin. As we read in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And so was I. Unrighteous, outcasts, unworthy of being in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. 
So if that describes our relationship with sin outside of Jesus, how did that change with Jesus' birth? Look with me at 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. As Ortland says, in Levitical categories, Jesus was the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors and terrors cause us to cringe that we see around us in this world, whatever cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean, they would cause him to cringe even more. But what did Jesus do when he saw the unclean? What did Jesus do when a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand. He touched him. Filled with compassion, he told the leper, I am willing, be clean. And immediately, the man was clean. What did Jesus do when he saw us? We who are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6 to write this, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus saw the desperate state that we were in, and he came. He touched us. He healed us. He cleansed us. And just as in Leviticus, it was a sacrifice that cleansed us, but not our sacrifice, his. Earlier in chapter 1 of 1 John, John writes in verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And notice what John says back in 1 John 3 verse 5, in him there is no sin. Jesus reverses the pattern that we see in the Old Testament. When Jesus, the clean one, touches an unclean sinner, he does not become unclean. The sinner becomes clean. If there are any listening this morning who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, who've not experienced the cleansing that can only be found in Him, I urge you this morning, receive Him. Trust in Him. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up first. You can't. Turn away from the things of this world that you've been relying on. You know in your hearts they can never fully satisfy you. Only Jesus can. Please, talk with me, talk with any of the folks that you see up front today, Uh, talk with the person sitting next to you, talk with the person who brought you. Today, in this moment, be washed, be sanctified, be justified in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What difference did Jesus' birth make in our relationship with sin? All the difference. Next, let's look at how the coming of the Messiah changed our relationship with God. And here, we need to go back to the beginning, the very beginning. 
We read in Genesis 1 that God created day and night, sky and land and seas and plants, the sun, the moon, the stars, sea creatures, flying creatures, walking creatures, crawling creatures. And after each thing that he created, God said that it was good. And yet, something was missing. So God created man in his own image and created woman out of man. And then he pronounced everything very good. In creating Adam and Eve in his own image, he created them to reflect his own knowledge and righteousness and holiness and gave them dominion over all that he had created. God and man enjoyed perfect communion with nothing between them. But Adam and Eve broke that communion by eating from the one tree that God had told them not to eat from. And with that, they and all mankind, all of us, lost communion with God. And not just that. We see in Genesis 3.15 that a state of enmity, a state of hostility or antagonism or war was established between God and mankind. We read in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And it continues to this day in our lives as well. Every sin that we commit is an act of rebellion against the king of glory. Every opportunity God gives us to say a word of grace or extend his mercy to someone who has a need, and we pass up that opportunity, that's an act of mutiny, an assault against the nature and character of God. So there we are, at war with God. How did that change with Jesus' birth? Look at 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. There's so much that we could say about this verse and all of its implications. But for this morning, I just want you to note the sheer astonishment that John is conveying. It's as if he is saying, can you possibly believe this? The infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, the one who out of nothing, merely by the power of his word, spoke into existence everything that is seen and unseen, the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, all-wise, all-just, the glorious King and Lord of heaven and earth. He's our Father. J.I. Packer wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very much at all. Scripture provides a number of different ways to describe our relationship with God, each of them precious and powerful in their own right. For example, we think of God as the righteous judge, and praise God, he is that. We read in Psalm 96, verse 13, For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness 
and the peoples in his faithfulness. As I've mentioned before, I used to do arbitration work for the state. And when I appeared before an arbitrator, I hoped that he or she would listen to my case, hear my witnesses, comprehend the case that I was putting forward, and would make a fair and just ruling based on all the evidence that was presented. I hoped that they would do that. But I wasn't looking to the arbitrator to love me. Or we think of God as the great physician. And praise God, he is that too. We read in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. When I had cancer nearly six years ago, I had tremendous care from the good folks of urology of Central PA, especially Dr. Moyer. He was thoroughly professional and provided wonderful, compassionate care for me throughout my surgery and through my therapy afterwards. And now, I don't have to go see him anymore. But I didn't look to him to love me. But here, John is pointing us to the apex of God's grace, the summit of his blessing, that you and I, rebel sinners that we were, know God as our Father, and that we are not will be someday, but are now the children of God. John is overcome by it. He's overwhelmed by it. Are we? A number of years ago, a book by Jerry Bridges called The Gospel for Real Life uh, painted a picture that captures the wonder of what we see here. The scene is death row, and a criminal awaits his execution. A rebel who's accused of trying to assassinate the king and overthrow the government. What Bridges, what Bridges wants us to understand and what we need to come to grips with is that that rebel is you and me. Every time we sin, we commit an act of treason against the authority of God. At the trial, there was an airtight case against us. The scenes of our life were shown, every sin captured in detail. And now we sit and wait for the executioner. We have no defense. We have no answer. We have no hope. But suddenly, the cell door flings open. And the judge who sentenced us to death is standing in front of us, a full pardon in his hand. In wonder and amazement, we ask, how can this be? And we learn that the judge looked at our sorry state and took pity on us. Who knows why? other than his love and mercy, and sentenced his own son, his loyal, loving, faithful son, to be executed in our place. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus assumed our liability for not obeying God's law perfectly, and he paid that liability to the utmost. He fully and completely satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. But the scene doesn't stop there. The judge holds up his other hand, and there they are, adoption papers. Not only has he pardoned us, but he's adopted us into his family to make us his very own sons and daughters. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he make us his children when we've lived so long as his enemy? Because he loves us. And he sent his only begotten son into the world for you and for me. That's the only explanation. 
I know for some of you, the idea of God being our father is difficult because of the earthly father you had. Some of you had fathers that no matter how hard you tried, you could never please them. Some of you have longed for years to hear your father say, I love you. And you're still waiting. Some have fathers who've loved their work more than they loved you. Perhaps some had fathers who abused you. And some maybe even had fathers who walked away. And you're sitting there saying, if God is like my father, I want nothing to do with God. Let me tell you, I am so sorry that that was your experience. But let me tell you, based on the authority of Scripture, God is not like your father. Maybe your father was harsh and demanding, but God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Maybe your father never said, I love you. But God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross, to ransom you and me from slavery, and to make us his children. Maybe your father left you, but God promises he will never leave you or forsake you. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God our Father. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we, we, should be called children of God. And so we are. What difference did Jesus' birth make in our relationship to God? All the difference. Lastly, let's look at the difference Jesus' birth makes in our relationship with each other. Again, let's start with who we were. And here in verse 12, John holds up Cain as who we are not to be like. And who was Cain? Well, for one thing, Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve the very first child of the man and woman who first rebelled against God, but first, who also first experienced God's mercy and grace. And also, Cain was a murderer. How much more graphic could the Bible be in its description of the pervasiveness of sin as a consequence of the fall than the description of Cain, the very first fruit of Eve's womb, being a murderer? The Bible doesn't tell us why exactly it was that Abel's offering was acceptable to God and Cain's was not. Perhaps Hebrews 11 gives us a bit of a clue by telling us that Abel presented his offering by faith and by implication, Cain did not not offer his by faith. In any event, Cain killed his brother. And the word that John implies here is a very graphic word. Literally, John says, He cut his throat. You could translate it as slaughtered or butchered. Cain brutally killed his brother, not because Abel was evil, but because Abel was righteous. It was out of jealousy. It was out of envy that Cain killed his brother. And so John is telling us that we're not to be like Cain. And we're not, right? We don't think of ourselves that way, do we? We don't put ourselves in the same category as men and women who are in prison and are there because they've murdered somebody. And we can be comfortable in that until we read that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 
Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or as John says here in 1 John 3 verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh Uh-oh. These past two years have been very hard. Political turmoil, racial strife, the pandemic. Emotions run high. Differences of opinion become lines in the sand. Friends become enemies. It's been horrible. But the thing is, the political turmoil, the racial strife, the pandemic, none of that has caused the hatred and upheaval that we see around us. Rather, those things have only revealed the deep-seated hatred that exists within us. So if that's who we were, how does that change with Jesus' birth? In John 3, verse 16, we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then later in chapter 4, John writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We are called to love one another. And let's look at this in a very practical, down-to-earth way this morning. Let's distinguish first between loving someone and liking someone. Now, an inconvenient truth is that not every child of God is equally likable. Let's be very honest about this. There may be some people here at Liberty that you would say that you just don't like very much. Their personality rubs you the wrong way. There's something about them that you're just not drawn to. They're the people that you avoid during coffee hour or during passing the peace. And guess what? Some of those people avoid you too. Now, I know that sounds difficult and awkward, and it shouldn't be that way. But there it is. And not only that, there are some people that we like a great deal. Uh, We have personal friends. Jesus had personal friends. Jesus had 12 disciples, yes, but he had a particularly special relationship with Peter, James, and John. In fact, John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. The commandment to love doesn't preclude the fact that there are some people who are close personal friends. And those people, our close friends, they're easy to love. It usually doesn't cost a whole lot to love them. The test is when you love somebody that you actually don't like. Or even to love someone who you know doesn't particularly like you. If we close our hearts to those brothers and sisters, how does the love of God dwell in us? Maybe there's somebody in this church, maybe somebody you don't know or barely know, maybe somebody you know and 
don't really like. But maybe there's somebody who's lost a job or is struggling to find a job. Maybe there's somebody whose marriage is struggling. Maybe somebody who's lonely. Or someone who is just going through a dark and difficult time. And they're in need, and you know about it. And John says here, in verse 17, here's the scenario. You have the world's goods. Maybe you don't feel as if you do have the world's goods, but get this. Paul writes in Ephesians of the unsearchable riches of God's grace. We have that now in Christ. And you see your brother and sister in need. There's no qualifier written in 1 John about whether or not you like the person. They're your brother, they're your sister, and they're in need. What are you going to do with that need? What are you going to do? That's it. It's as practical and down-to-earth as that. Here's a brother and sis- or sister in need, and God has made that need known to you, and you have tools at your disposal to address that need. What are you going to do? Here at Liberty, one of our foundational values, one of our nine rhythms of grace, is one anothering through spiritual gifts. We describe what that means this way. The biblical bedrock of relationships among Christians are the 55 one another commandments of the New Testament. These are what inform our understanding of a godly, healthy, thriving community in the church. They transform us into a community that is not focused on ourselves, but those who God has divinely divinely placed around us. I can't think of a better New Year's resolution for us as a church than to rededicate ourselves to expressing our love for God by actively looking for opportunities to extend His love to our brothers and sisters here. And don't underestimate what a powerful witness that is to a watching world. With all the division, all the strife, all the anger that we see around us, the door is wide open for us to demonstrate the love of Christ by our love for one another. In the early church, the writer and historian Tertullian tells us the pagans were struck by the witness of Christian love. See how they love one another, they would remark, and how they are ready to die for one another. Just as Jesus entered into this world and gave his life for us, we now have the calling and capacity to love one another with that same self-sacrificing love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we are to lay down our life for each other. What difference did the birth of Jesus make in our relationship with each other? All the difference. As we close the books on Christmas 2021 and look ahead to 2022, may the birth of Jesus Christ make all the difference in our lives as we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Christ in the Harrisburg region, all for his glory and honor. Let us pray. Father, would the birth of Jesus Christ not merely be an event that we recognize and celebrate once a year, but may it shape and define our lives all throughout the year. And would your spirit work in and through us that we would demonstrate our love for you through our love for one another.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.